Well, I think that as Christians, we tend to think that the more obvious, overt sins are more serious to God. You know, like the, hope, the high-profile sins like murder, adultery, theft, idolatry. And, and those certainly are serious sins, right? But, but you don't do those, and, and that's good. But you might be surprised to learn just how seriously God takes the hidden sins, that the covert sins that go unnoticed by us. I'm talking about the wide range of what you might call smaller sins that you're so used to you may not even notice them anymore. These sins easily become habits that we tolerate and they slip right under the radar. But not, not to God, of course. They might include anger, pride, impatience, envy, jealousy, anxiety, discontentment, unthankfulness, and a lack of self-control. A list like that hits home a lot more, these smaller sins, the subtle sins. And we have to constantly be on the lookout for such covert sins in our lives. If I could add one sin to that list, though, that we must always be on guard against, it would be complaining. Complaining is a perfect example of a small little sin that just slips right by. It's not flashy, it's not overt, it doesn't draw a lot of attention. Everybody does it, so you barely notice it anymore. Between yourself and everyone else, you're, you're so accustomed to it, it's just a normal thing we do. We, we all complain. Yet to God, complaining, it might surprise you, is actually quite a significant offense. Why? Why is complaining such a big deal? Well, just consider by way of example how children so often complain. It is Mother's Day. After all, and this is not a Mother's Day sermon per se, but it might well as be. Since complaining is one of the greatest, uh, you could say, problems kids have with their mothers. Moms, I'm sure this will resonate with you. And pretend you've, you've worked hard to prepare a nice home-cooked meal for your family. You know, other families, they're doing TV dinners, but you've got a nice home-cooked meal. You've gone above and beyond. You, you've labored in the kitchen for a couple of hours Dinner is finally served, the time has come, the family just kind of descends on the dinner table and swoops in, and what do the kids say? I don't want this. I don't like fish. This doesn't look good. Can I just have chips for dinner? Uh, Everyone with kids has surely experienced this before, and to be fair, all of us, when we were kids, we, we did this to our parents, I'm sure, as well. But when you think about it, such complaining is doubly offensive. For one, it's offensive to your mother, for, for you're not appreciating all of her hard work and dedication to care for the family, to, to provide for the family. In a way, it's also offensive to all those in the world who are less fortunate. I know it's cliche, but it's true. Think of all those who are starving, who don't have the luxury of any dinner, let alone a, a home-cooked meal. And you really you should be super thankful you have any dinner at all. It's not wrong to have preferences. It's not wrong to not like fish, for example. But it is wrong to complain for it reveals a heart of, of ingratitude and selfishness. And when you understand that, you can see why complaining is such a significant sin to God as well. Parents give so much to their children, especially early on in love, supplying their every need. If it weren't for parents, kids at first couldn't even survive. They provide them food, shelter, clothing. They spend thousands of dollars to raise them, even just, just to bless them, put a smile on their face. Well, infinitely more so, God gives us life, even eternal life, and countless blessings on top of that. We literally owe every good thing in our lives to God. 
And for those who know Christ, we owe him our eternal salvation. So we, we've been given everything. We are richly blessed in Christ. In that regard, we have nothing to complain about ever. Yet when we do complain, really about anything, it's more of a slap in the face to God than it is to our parents, for example. For then we're expressing our own selfishness, our own ingratitude. If you can understand how parents would be offended by the constant complaining of their kids, well, you can therefore understand how God is likewise offended, transgressed by the the complaining of, of his children even more so. Complaining may be a sin that we tolerate or even ignore, but it is not that way with God. You can open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And if, if you want to follow along, you can even grab a pew Bible. It, it's page 154 on the New Testament side of things. Page 154 in a, in a pew Bible. We're coming here to the end of the first major section in the book of Philippians. Paul started this letter with an introduction and a personal update. And shortly in chapter 2, verse 19, he will resume that personal update. That is, after all, a large part of why he's writing this letter, to let the Philippians know what's going on with them. He's, he's in prison, he's in Rome, he's giving them a personal report. But back in chapter 1, verse 27, he finally gave the, the main exhortation of the letter to the Philippians. And that's just for, for the sake of review, read that one more time, Philippians 1, 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's all about living in light of the gospel, living in light of our salvation. It's at the center of this admonition. But you'll also notice some undercurrents of unity in that main exhortation. They are to stand firm in one spirit. They are to strive together with one mind. That's because disunity and dissension were becoming some serious issues in this otherwise healthy church, the Philippian church. We can gather later from chapter 4 that a serious personal conflict between two prominent women in the church was starting to spill over uh, to the rest of the church. Divisions were formed, sides were taken. And Paul took such divisions quite seriously. Remember, he founded the Philippian church. He labored over them. The last thing he wants to see is this church implode over petty internal strife and division, making his labor in vain. So a lot of what he writes in Philippians has to do with this theme of unity. And in a way, that actually accounts for our text for today, verses 14 through 16. Now, last time we went through verses 12 and 13 in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul reiterates his main exhortation in a succinct and and powerful way. Let's just read that again, Philippians 2, verse 12. He gets back and he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we learned last time, this is a call to obedience, the call to grow in Christ-likeness, to actively pursue the Christian life, not just coast and neutral, but, but to work. 
At the same time, though, recognizing that all the power to do that work comes from God, supplied by God. We know that we're saved by grace apart from works. But after salvation, God expects us to get to work, to to obey him. God's standard for holy living still applies, not, not as a means of salvation, a means of attaining righteousness. That comes by God's free gift in Christ. But rather, we now strive after holiness because of our high calling. And so obedience to God still matters. We're not saved by obedience. But once saved, we are expected to obey, in fact, enabled to obey God. Seeing his will as good and perfect, we want to obey for it is right. And God gives us the power and the heart, the motive to do so, which pleases him. So that we all learned last time, and and that's Paul reiterating this main exhortation. After that, moving on, he he exhorts the Philippians to, to work out their salvation in a more specific way. He gets more specific with the call to work out your salvation. He gives some more specific ways they can do that. They can grow in their obedience. And that starts in verse 14. And what do, you think, what do you think he brings up first? What's at the top of Paul's list for the Philippians to, to work on when it comes to their sanctification? It's not thieving or adultery or, or drunkenness or idolatry. They were very obedient by those standards, the standard of, of the big overt sins. They were, they were good there. But like all Christians, they were not unstained by these covert sins that slip in unnoticed, but can be just as dangerous. These sins are like riptides. You don't see them at first, but they can sweep you out to sea. And for the Philippians, one of their chief covert sins was complaining, which we'll see later played a part in their division, their dissension. That's what complaining does. It it ends up tearing people apart. And so let's, with that introduction, let's go ahead and read now Paul's follow-up instructions now after telling them in general, work out your salvation. Here's how he immediately follows that up. And let's read Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16. He says next, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of of life, so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Now, it may seem like a lot, but it's actually a very simple passage. It consists of one command and three reasons for the command. Yet Paul's instructions here, they, they prove quite timeless for the church today because this main issue, complaining, it's still a subtle, hidden sin that can infect good churches, good people, and cause a lot of division and strife. It's still something we need to look out for. We too would do well to progress in our own obedience to God by being aware of and putting off the sin of complaining. And we want to learn more about this morning. We want to uncover the, the hidden dangers of, of complaining. So all we're going to do is just take a closer look at this passage, and we're going to spend most of our time there just exploring the basic command of it all. Verse 14, let's look there again, the, the command. Where he says, do all things 
without grumbling or disputing. In the NASB, your translation might also read, do all things without complaining or arguing. And that, on the surface, that's it. That's the main command. That's his main exhortation to them, following up from working out their salvation. It's pretty straightforward. Don't complain. Don't argue. The first word here translated grumbling. It's a, it's a synonym for complaining. When you don't like something, when something doesn't go your way, that the natural response of your flesh is to complain about it, to murmur, to grumble, whether it's out loud or under your breath. This is a way of expressing your dissatisfaction with something. And as you know, when, when others are involved in such complaining, it, it doesn't foster harmony. It doesn't make you feel closer to someone. It only fosters division and, and separation. And with this grumbling comes disputing. Second word mentioned in verse 14 there. This word in the Greek is dialogismos, from which, from which we get the word dialogue. However, this, this dialoguing can be a virtue or a vice. This word can be used in, in a positive sense, dialoguing with someone. You know, referring to just talking something out, thinking something through in a good way, and, and that's fine. But there's a negative sense of this word where it refers to disputing and arguing. This is the difference between a a helpful discussion and a contentious debate. And I'm sure you know that difference. And Paul is talking about the latter here when it comes to their their arguing. They weren't just talking it out. They were disputing, being contentious. This is the person who, when they're told to do something by their authority, they, they talk back. They argue. They dispute. They question. Instead of just obeying, they're a disputer. Maybe another parenting example will, will suffice. Imagine you have a mom and she tells her kids to go clean their rooms. And one child immediately just, just talks back and says, you know, why, why should I do that? I don't, I don't want to clean my room. It's just going to get dirty tomorrow anyway. So why should I? And now it's like the mom, she has to win an argument in order to be obeyed. She can't just be obeyed. She has to prove her point. The other child goes off, though, and, and she cleans her room. Later, the mom comes and finds it a mess, and she says, I thought I told you to clean your room. To which the child responds, and, and she says, well, well yeah, I, I did, but you didn't define what you meant by clean, so this is clean to me, and so it's good. But you see, both of these kids are disputers, both of them. Instead of simply obeying the command of their authority and honoring their mother they have disputed and you can see how this is wrong before our earthly parents and you can also see it's all the more wrong before god remember in the context here this is grumbling and disputing before god which we do all the time as well speaking of this is wrong before god all the time back to verse 14 he says do all things without grumbling or disputing the command for, for do, do all things, it's a present imperative, meaning this is, this is a standing order. It pertains, he says, to all things, which is a reference back to their obedience from verse 12. The Philippians are to continue to grow in their obedience to God in, in all things. And these two attitudes, complaining, arguing, must not be present in any of their obedience. All, all the ways they're called to obey God, they're not to 
include complaining or, or arguing in any of those areas. Complaining and arguing, they're, they're subtle sins that can spoil otherwise good deeds. They're, they're kind of like rotten eggs mixed into a cake. They, they, they ruin the whole thing. That They spoil something that otherwise was good. Take hospitality, for example. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And I think you said that for a reason, because it's easier said than done, providing hospitality without complaint. Imagine you had some fellow believers, they live close by, and one day they've got a bad leak in their house, it floods the whole house, it's going to take a couple weeks to repair, and also they're, they're kind of tight on funds, so they ask you, their, their neighbor, if they can maybe stay with you for a little while, just to, until it gets fixed, and you kindly say yes, and you generally you want to help them out, you want to show them love and hospitality, but it doesn't take long before things start to bother you. You've got to give up your living room for like a week. Your kitchen is overflowing with dishes. You've got to do extra laundry. It's just starting to wear you down, all these little things. And so in private, you complain to your spouse. And you say, these people, they're so messy. And I'm, I'm tired of having to work around them. I just want my living room back. I want to relax. They're just getting in, in my way. Maybe you murmur under your breath. Maybe you're even short with your house guests. Now look, have you done them good? Yes, you have blessed them, you have helped them, you have shown them hospitality. But in God's eyes, your supposed good deed is now spoiled, tainted, because it's been mixed with your grumbling and disputing. And so it goes with all things. All things can be ruined by the companion sins of complaining and arguing. Which is why he says, do all things without complaining and arguing, grumbling and disputing. These two attitudes must play no part in any of our obedience. No exceptions. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that's verse 14. Like I said, it's not actually complicated. Don't complain. Don't argue. Instead, obey God in all things with, with a happy heart. Obey all of your authority with a happy heart. It sounds simple, but it's really hard to do sometimes. And I'm sure you know what I mean. And why is that? Why is it so easy to complain for us? It, it's, it's a natural, we would say it's a natural response. That's why we think nothing of it. Why is it? Why is it it comes so easy for us when things don't go our way to complain or to argue? Well, the answer has to do with our fallen natures. Back to Adam and Eve in the fall. What were they doing when they sinned? They were casting off God's authority from them. God was their creator. And he, he gave them his will for their lives, and, and his will is best. Yet in sin, they came to believe that their own will was best, that they knew better than God. So they disobeyed, they rebelled, and we know we inherit that same sinful nature, a sin nature that at its core wants to rebel against God and his authority. And what you have to realize is that heart of rebellion, it's behind every complaint. Every time you complain, you're expressing that same heart of rebellion against God that Adam and Eve had from the beginning. And this is the deeper reason why complaining and disputing are actually 
serious sins before God. They are akin to the sin of rebellion. Now, this is, this is worth our time, so let me help you better understand why complaining is so offensive to God. There's no greater example of this in the Bible than Israel, the nation of Israel in the wilderness. In fact, our word for grumbling here in verse 14, that same word is used of Israel all the time in the wilderness, in in the Greek version of the Old Testament. How did they respond to their circumstances? They grumbled all the time. Whenever they were inconvenienced or threatened, they just complained. They argued. This started from the very beginning with their deliverance from Egypt. You, You guys remember the Exodus? God displayed his power through the ten plagues, causing Pharaoh to, to let them go. But, but not long after that, Pharaoh changed his mind. And so he chases after them with his mighty chariots. Remember that? And the people, they see the army. What do they do? They forget all about God's power, which he just displayed, and they, just, they start to complain. Exodus 14, 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They, they complained such that they preferred their slavery to God's deliverance. You see how that response reveals a lack of trust. But God in his grace still showed up to deliver the people. A little something called the, the parting of the Red Sea and he delivered them. The people rejoiced. That was good. But then just three days later, what do you think happens again? Just three days after that, what do they do? Exodus 15:22 tells us and following, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled, same word, at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now look, when you're, when you're in desperate need of water, it's not wrong to, to cry out for help. But that's not what these people were doing. They were not asking in faith, but complaining in doubt. Still, though, God graciously shows up again, provides for them again, provides them a source of water. But that doesn't last long. Because after water comes food. Now they're hungry. They forgot all about God's provision of water. And now that they're back to grumbling, this time about food. And so next chapter, Exodus 16, verse 2 and following, it says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This makes you think, what's it going to take for these people just to to get it, to trust God's will, his plan for their lives? And clearly God's doing something with them. It's not just going to let them starve to death. But they don't. They don't trust God to provide. Instead, they continue to grumble and, and to complain, to dispute. Again, though, nevertheless, God's mercy was renewed. 
He shows up again. This time he miraculously sends manna from heaven to feed the people every day. He gives them all the food, all the water that they will need. And so at this point, okay, you think that's enough. That's it. That They're going to learn their lesson. They're finally going to trust God, just thank God, no more complaining, no more doubting. Let's just you know, carry on to the promised land. But no, still not enough. Water's not enough. Food's not enough. Next, they want meat. Do you remember this? They want meat. Numbers 11.4 tells us, it says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? They longed for all the food they had in Egypt, and they started complaining, like, we have nothing but this manna. It's just like, it's tasteless, it's bread, what, what, it's just not enough. And just imagine that. God had miraculously supplied them all the food they would ever need in the, in the middle of the desert from heaven, just manna from heaven. But it still wasn't enough, and when their greedy desires weren't met, they complained against God who had just delivered them from slavery and was taking them to the promised land. At this point, though, God started starting to get to him. It says his anger was kindled, and it offended God. Why? I trust now you can see it, it should be obvious to you. Their complaining was unbelief. It was rebellion. Their dissatisfaction was really with God, who was redeeming them even though he was redeeming them and bringing them into the promised land, they were really spitting in his face because he didn't bow to their every desire. So this time, what does God do? He provides meat. He sends quail to come, and it falls on the camp three feet deep to provide meat for all the people. But this time, the quail comes with plague, killing all those who had complained. And so really, do you, do you need a, a clearer picture of what God thinks of the sin of grumbling and disputing? Pretty clear. That being said, though, there is one more picture, one clearer picture. Because after all of this, God still proves faithful to his promises to this people. And he, he brings them right to the promised land. They're right there. They're on the threshold. They just have to step over and take the promised land. But they send out spies, as you remember, and they come back and they tell the people, this land is filled with, with mighty warriors. When the people hear that the land is, is filled with powerful people, what do they do? They complain. They say, oh, that there's, there's no way we're going to be able to conquer this land. Moses brought them all this way for nothing. Would have been better for them to die in Egypt or in the wilderness, they said. They even go so far as to appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. After all that God had done, delivered them from slavery, they're, they're right there on the doorstep of the promised land that they want to go back. God had delivered them from slavery, from death. He gave them life and land, blessing and prosperity. But it still wasn't enough. They still couldn't just, just trust him to deliver. Yeah, it might, it might seem like adversity, but just, just trust him to provide, to deliver. But they didn't. And it was unbelief. It was a lack of trust. It was rebellion against God. It was as the sin of rebellion. And so this time, 
it met with God's greatest discipline. Numbers 14, 27 following says, God says after their complaint, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. The entire generation, 20 and up, would never enter the promised land. They would perish in the wilderness because of their rebellion, which was tied to their their complaining. Now Israel, they were still God's chosen people. But even God's children can only dishonor him so many times before he will discipline them. And indeed, that's what sometimes kids need, especially spoiled, selfish, greedy, complaining children. They need a little discipline to be reminded why they should be so thankful for everything they have. Once there was a British mother who had a 14-year-old daughter who always complained about dinner. So the mother, she got so fed up, she decided to put her daughter on the same diet she had during World War II. And during the war, one week's ration of food was 14 ounces of meat, three eggs, three pounds of potatoes, and two ounces of cheese. Sunday dinner was bread, butter, and one hard-boiled egg. And the daughter stopped complaining. Hopefully, though, you can learn from Israel's bad example. It's actually one of the reasons all that history is recorded for us. In fact, Paul himself, over in 1 Corinthians 10, he there recalls Israel's wilderness wanderings and all of their their sin, their folly, their complaining. And he tells us, learn from their example. Let me read that, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11. Just, Just listen along. He says of Israel, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. He says, do not be idolaters as they were. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He says, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. The whole point is, learn the lesson from Israel. Learn the easy way from from their mistakes rather than the hard way from, from your own life of grumbling where God might discipline you. God wants your heart. He wants your faith. He wants your trust. He's worthy of these things. He will deliver you. He will. He does care for you. But the Israelites fell in the wilderness because they did not believe God and they did not trust God. Instead, they complained. And we must learn simply, don't follow their lead. Learn from them why grumbling and disputing are such serious sins before God. For one, complaining represents taking for granted all that you do have. 
you, you, when you complain, you're in essence saying all of your spiritual blessings, which are too many to count, but like manna from heaven, they're not good enough. I want more. It's, it's an amazing insult to God's abounding grace. You've been given even eternal life in Christ. God has, He's gone to the extent of sacrificing His own Son, Christ, on the cross in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. I trust you know that. You believe that. And if that's true for you, you've been given the greatest gift ever. And in light of that, there's really nothing you have to complain about. You have eternal life in Christ. And any complaining thereafter is is revealing a heart of ingratitude. In addition, grumbling and and disputing reveals a, a lack of trust in God, a lack of faith in God. And you know without faith, it is impossible to please him. Think about why you complain. Things you complain about. It's usually some negative circumstance that's happened in your life that's usually out of your control. Like you don't have enough money, you're stuck in a low-paying job, there's a lot of traffic, your car broke down again, you slammed your hand in the door, you've got to wear a cast for a month, or your, your roof is leaking. I mean, the list goes on. There's a million things you could complain about. What you have to realize, though, is although you may not be in control of these things, who is? God is. God is still sovereign over all of your life's circumstances. Now, God is not some wicked taskmaster who delights in causing you calamity, but he is sovereign over all things, and he allows even negative circumstances in our lives to test us and to perfect us, to stretch our faith and our trust in him. Again, think back to Israel. God was in the process of redeeming them, taking them to the promised land, right? Yet he took them through the desert. And God knew the desert had no food or water. He didn't take them through the desert just to make them miserable, but he was giving them an opportunity to trust him. And you likewise have to know and believe God cares for you. He has designed all things. He works all things for your good. For those who love him. Maybe you don't see that in your life right now. A lot of bad things going on. But at least see it on the cross. Where God has redeemed you in Christ. He has proved his love. His care. His concern for you. He's given you all the provision you need. All all the, the supply you need on the cross. Through Christ's death and resurrection. Just just look to that. And be confident. God he, he knows what he's doing. I can trust him. In Christ, you are eternally secure. In this life, we may still have adversity. Bad things will happen. We have a lot to potentially complain about. But God wants us to trust him still. And even even at times, he will turn our adversities into blessings. Just last week, we went camping. We also went a detour to Pinnacles National Park. Pretty cool. I have to confess, though, just to be fair here, because there was a lot of conviction with a sermon like this this morning. I did my fair share of complaining. I complained about the extra driving we had to do to get there. I complained about winding up on the wrong side of the park, not where we had intended, the, the less cool side of the park. And I complained about carrying Noah in my baby backpack on a hike. It's supposed to be a short hike. It turned into a long, steep hike. Angel's laughing. And so uh, a bit of complaining. That aside, though, I, after we got through all that, it turned into a very happy surprise. It's not where we wanted to go, actually, but it turned into a, a great 
surprised because we found these cool literal bat caves. We descended into actual bat caves. Pretty cool. And just found a great place. Had a great time together. I know it's a paltry example, but in many greater ways, God can take the things we complain about, the adversities of life, great or small, and he often can turn them into blessings anyway. He just wants us to trust him. In fact, it goes so far that we are not even to complain about suffering, about real suffering. We've learned a lot about suffering in Philippians. Don't forget verse, chapter 1, verse 29, and all that we learned there. Three sermons on, on suffering. Suffering is not good, but God allows it in our lives for many good purposes. But when you refuse to embrace the plan of God for your life, when you grumble and complain, you're in effect shaking your fist at God. When you complain, you're in effect saying, God, God's not really on the throne. He, he's not really in control. Or if he is, he doesn't care about me. Or maybe God's not wise. Maybe, maybe his plan stinks and my plan for my life is better and, and I should be in charge. When you complain, you're saying God's timing is not best, his purposes are not best, his, his provision for you, his, his ways for you are not best. And it can be about anything. But these are all lies we believe in the moment. And they all amount to rebellion against God because he has allowed that for a good purpose. And he still wants you to trust him. No excuse to complain. And all such complaining, like the Jews, it amounts to rebellion against a God who is wise and loving and sovereign and good. It's like the clay saying back to the potter, you don't really know what you're doing. Let me me take it from here. I, I think I know better. So put these attitudes off. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, without complaining and arguing. It's so simple, but it's not so easy because our sinful flesh wants nothing more than to serve ourselves. So so we all complain. But the solution, as with all things, is to just grow more in your trust in God and to find your soul's delight in Him. Realize if you are fully satisfied in Christ, there's nothing to complain about. All complaining results in dissatisfaction from something. But if you find your soul's entire satisfaction in in Christ himself, you're good to go. You have nothing to complain about. And indeed, for us, Christ is enough. So look to Christ. Now, we're not quite done because Paul, he issues this straightforward command in verse 14. Then he backs it up with three specific reasons to obey this command in verses 15 and 16 and we're going to finish up now by looking at these. It'll be brief, though. But let's, let's, let's go over these three specific reasons he, he adds to obey this command, to not grumble, not complain. First, don't complain for the sake of your holiness. Don't complain for the sake of your holiness. Look again at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. He says, so that, here's a reason, You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Realize when it comes to the sin of complaining, your holiness is at stake. Like Israel, God calls us to be holy, to live lives that are set apart, distinct from the world. This is a a crooked and perverse generation back then and today, still is. Yet when you complain, you blend right in. You are just like the world. 
That's actually what Israel did. They turned into a crooked and perverse generation. They lost their distinction. But God calls us to be separate, different, holy. So for us, when adversity comes, when trouble comes, instead of complaining like everyone else does, we, we just we trust, we pray, and we rest in the perfect peace of God. That, that's what we should do. And in doing this, it says we prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent. Blameless means to be above accusation or blame. Innocent means unmixed or pure. It was, it was used of undiluted wine. You put these two together, you basically get above reproach, which he says. And what that means is when those of the world, when they look at our lives, they can't bring up any reproach against us. They, they may still hate us because they hate our Lord, they hate what we stand for. So be it. But do not give the world an occasion to slander the Lord by your own sin, including grumbling and disputing. The world, they happily walk on a crooked path, living lives in in sin. We're called not to join them. We're called to a higher path and a narrower way. And so be distinct for the sake of your holiness. Do not grumble. Do not complain. Do not dispute. Do not argue like those in the world. Now, speaking of those in the world, number two, don't complain for the sake of your witness. Don't complain for the sake of your witness. Continuing on in verse 15, he says, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Our personal holiness is at stake when it comes to the sin of complaining. So is our personal witness. God calls us to be different from this crooked and perverse generation. But he doesn't call us to abandon the generation. Like Peter preached in Acts 2.40, we are to be saved from this generation, but not necessarily out of. Like the saying goes, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. It would be so much easier to leave the world behind and live in a Christian bubble somewhere. That's not our mission. Again, like Israel, we are to be holy and set apart from the nations, yet a light to the nations as well. We can't just escape the world. We have to let the light shine in the midst. Like Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And here you can see how complaining, among other sins, it it diminishes our witness to the world. It it knocks down our platform to share the gospel with them. Back in Philippians 2.16, he says, we are to be holding fast the word of life. Holding forth, it means. It's like you're holding it out to, to everyone passing by to take it from you. Take the gospel. Believe. But if your hands are dirty, who wants to take the gospel from you? Your life is like a plate. The gospel is the food on the plate, the, the bread of life. And the, the food is always good, but, but if the plate, if you were served dinner on like a disgusting, filthy, rotten plate, you would have no appetite. You wouldn't want the meal. And granted, we know God is sovereign in salvation, but he calls us to be clean vessels that we might testify to the world of God's transforming grace. And in so doing, we, we highlight the power of the gospel. And God uses that 
to save people. So beware complaining and arguing among other sins, lest your witness be diminished. We're called to be God's lighthouses to the world. And when we sin, when we complain just as much as the world around us, argue just as much, the light goes out. The light is diminished. Instead, let your light shine. And then finally, number three, don't complain for the sake of your leaders. Don't complain for the sake of your leaders. Notice how he finishes verse 16, holding fast the word of life. He says, so that, here's another reason, in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. At the end here, Paul makes it personal. They're complaining. It's tied to, to their witness and their holiness. So if they blow it, humanly speaking, Paul's labor over them has been in vain. Instead, Paul wants to take glory in the Philippians. He says literally to boast in them. Any father would be proud if his son hit a home run in a baseball game. And likewise, Paul, he, he takes a holy pride in the success of his spiritual children. This is not a worldly boasting here, but a spiritual boasting. It's not a present pride, but a future pride. He wants the Philippians to obey and to not complain for the sake of, of him, his, their leader, so that he can boast on the day of Christ. On the day of Christ, all believers will be judged, not in respect to salvation, but in respect to stewardship. How did you run your race? You will be judged and rewarded accordingly. And on that day, Paul wanted reason to boast. He did not want his labor over the Philippian church to prove to be in vain as the church was torn apart by dissension, tied to complaining and disputing. And so it goes for all church leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pastors are, are mere men, but God has entrusted them who are qualified with some of his authority, and you are called to follow their lead for your own sake and for their sake with joy, and they will, for they will give an account. Now after this in Philippians 2, Paul actually has a lot more to say about how his personal ministry is, is tied into the Philippians and their running of the race. There's a lot more to say here about that. We'll save that part for next time. But as a final thought, though, I, I trust and I hope. It's a, it's a short verse. It's really just a simple command. But hopefully this time it has helped to, to clarify, even expose the, the sin, the hidden sin of complaining potentially even in your own life. Maybe it has escaped your notice, gone unnoticed in, in your own relationships. We all can be complainers toward our, our circumstances, toward our spouses, toward our children, our parents, our relatives, our in-laws, our neighbors, our co-workers. But I hope you really see this morning that all such complaining, it's really against God. It's all complaining against God. And not only does our complaining tear our 
horizontal relationships apart, it also hinders that, that vertical relationship as well. You know, back in Exodus, the people, whenever they complained, they always expressed their complaints to Moses. They complained about Moses or to Moses, but Moses knew better. He said in Exodus 16:9, he said, your grumblings, they're not against us, but against the Lord. And so it goes for us. All such complaining, it's really against God who he, he's put you where you are. You have to open your eyes to this. Let, let the Spirit convict you and change you. You may have legitimate trouble in life, trials and tribulations. You may have a lot of things, worldly speaking, to complain about. But you have to see your circumstances not like the world. You have to see them with, with spiritual vision. You have to ask yourself, as things go on, you know, what's God doing here? Is he trying to show me something or, or teach me something? How is God working this out for good? And even if you can't see it in the moment, still you trust. Well, I know God is good and sovereign and wise. And I know that he loves me and cares for me. And I know that he's working all things out for my good. He's proved this already on the cross. And so really, because of the cross, you have nothing to ever worry about, really, eternally speaking, and nothing to complain about as well. So instead of complaining, instead of disputing, just rest in his arms. Trust God to provide. Trust God to deliver. This is how you turn all your adversities into opportunities to grow in that trust. And you can trust that in the end, God will safely deliver you as well to his promised land. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time this morning. Lord, we know your word is like a a sharp two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. It, It cuts us. It lays us open. It exposes the thoughts and desires of our hearts. And And sometimes it it pierces so as to convict. And any time we have a passage on complaining, we we all are probably convicted as your word exposes uh, the hidden sins of our heart that slip by, go unnoticed, and and sometimes take a foothold. Lord, we know, however, that your word must cut before it heals like the surgeon's scalpel. It it lays us bare only to uh, mend us back together and, and make us stronger, Lord. And we trust that will happen this morning. May we bear this conviction and, and grow. Open our eyes to the subtle sins of complaining and arguing, which we can be so prone to do in so many ways in our lives. Trusting you're, you're good and, and, and the adversities we encounter, well, you have a reason for them all. None of them provide us an excuse to, to, to worry or to complain, to argue or, or to dispute. But rather, they provide us opportunities to, to trust you, to pray to wrestle with you in prayer, and and to rest in your provision, which we know will come. Because you are good and loving and and wise and and in control. And you have indeed proved this on the cross. We thank you for Christ, our ultimate provision, the greatest gift. We honor him this morning who who secures us and, and is our boast. May our boasting and our trust, our hope be in him. And in him there is nothing to complain about. We are richly blessed. May we remember this this morning as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.